Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Philippa Nuttall, Environment Editor at The New Statesman, and you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Christiana Figueres. Christiana is a Costa Rican diplomat who, Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, was a key architect of the 2015 Paris Agreement. I wanted to start, obviously, by, by discussing COP26, which will come as no surprise. I think you've been quite clear in terms of what was successful at COP. You mentioned the idea that we're now focused on 1.5 rather than 2 degrees, the ratchet mechanism, and also the idea that nature is now seen more up there as a potential. But what I wanted to focus on more is, is what's missing from this. And in particular, you were quite vocal at COP26 about the need to rebuild the trust between developing and developed countries and whether you think that what happened at COP26 was a step in the right direction towards that. Yes. So what what is still missing? So yes, absolutely. 1.5, I would say, is the new two degrees. So that is good news that there is overall agreement, which there certainly wasn't just three years ago about the fact that 1.5 needs to be the ceiling. I think the general mood just three years ago was it is completely even impossible to to limit our warming to 1.5. So that's excellent. But I must say that is in theory, right? Politically, we are agreeing that we're not going to let the temperature go above 1.5 for all the reasons that we know. But what is still missing is, and how are we going to make sure that is the case? How do we implement that? Because there still is a gap between what governments have said they're going to do at COP26. And if you look at how much has been put on the table, we've definitely progressed before Paris. We were heading for somewhere almost like six degrees centigrade warming with the first 
tranche of commitments that were put on the table in 2015, we whacked that down to 3.7, which is better, but still catastrophic to humanity. Now, with everything that was put on the table at COP26 and the 12 months before, we whacked that down to 2.7 degrees, which is definitely better. And if you include all of the private sector commitments that came forward, which was astonishing this year, that actually might even go down to 1.8. So one might say very good progress. The problem there is that even a tenth of a degree makes a huge difference for the quality of life on this planet. So that is why what is still missing is actually to see governments go beyond what they have agreed to now in COP26 to say, we're going to come back next year to close that gap, which is a huge political move. Excellent. But now we have to see how are they actually going to be able to integrate all of the, let's say, the private sector commitments that were put on the table. How are those going to be reflected in what is called the NDCs, which are the nationally determined contributions, so that by the end of next year in Egypt, they actually could set forth the path for all of them to ensure a 1.5 degree ceiling. So I would say politically, we definitely moved. Now the, the issue is how do we back that up with implementation, with finance, with policies, with measures to ensure that by ne end of next year, we actually have charted out the 1.5 degree trajectory. Sure. And obviously the UK as COP president still is key to making sure this happens. Are you confident in the UK's ability to, to do this and also the commitment of the UK government to, to remain fully committed to the process? Boris Johnson made it a personal crusade to make COP26 a, a relative success. Now the spotlight's off. Do you think that commitment will continue? I'm actually been very impressed with everything that I have heard from the British government after the end of COP26, because you have to compare it to what usually happens, that a COP presidency delivers their COP, and then even though, strictly speaking, they are the sitting presidents, it's actually the incoming presidency that takes over the political movement and the, um, and the preparation for the incoming COP. That is also true this year, Egypt will move into their role to prepare COP27, but I think quite unusually and as a huge improvement from what we've seen in the past, I don't see any evidence that the UK government is about to just sit back and say, we have done our responsibility by delivering the outcomes of COP26. Quite to the contrary, I see the British government and certainly Alok Sharma and his team, supported, of course, by the PM, saying that they will remain engaged to ensure that this astonishing harvesting of, of pledges and commitments that were made at COP26, that they can go beyond the paper and into practice. And, and do you think that engagement from the UK and the fact that they're working in partnership with Egypt where COP27 will be held could be a defining moment in terms of rebuilding this trust, which is, is still partly missing between the developed world and, and, and developing countries and, and moving forward so that we don't end up with like at the end of COP26 again, where we have India, China or others coming forward and saying, no, we can't deliver on that because we still need to develop. 
Yes, I'm so glad that you brought up the topic of trust because if there was any asset that was uh, quite absent at COP26. It was trust between industrialized and developing nations, trust between governments and other stakeholders, trust between the older generation that is sitting at the decision tables and the younger generation that is out on the streets, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that was the biggest missing component at COP26 for very understandable reasons. Yes, I very much um, appreciate and applaud the fact that the British government will continue to stay engaged. They are very aware of the fact that the huge challenge here is, yes, to do the technical, the technical work that needs to be done but more than anything at the level of public perception and public understanding, they need to build back the trust in the process and in the practical steps that are being taken to decarbonize the global economy. And yes, it is actually a, a very good setup that we have on the one hand, the British government sitting presidency and an incoming presidency from a leading developing country. So that already tells you that is a quite fortuitous, actually, uh, team if they can really work together because Egypt will bring other issues to the fore. They will be much more focused on adaptation than on mitigation. They will be much more focused on finance being delivered to developing countries rather than on financing in industrialized countries, very understandably. So if the two of them work together, they can actually help us to rebuild trust. And in terms of, of the financing, that was clearly um, a massive issue, especially financing for loss and damage, so for the, the destruction that's already been wrought on, on developing countries by climate change. And there's still this problem, especially from the, the US perspective, that they don't want to get into a situation whereby they feel that they're paying compensation, where there could be legal cases opened up against them. Do you think there needs to be a, a change? I know that we have this mechanism now in place that's supposed to advance this dialogue, but do you think there also needs to be a change in the way that we, we we look to this so that there's less fear from countries like the US that this could open a whole bag, a, bag, a can of worms that they then can never get the lid back on again and therefore it will make it very difficult to get any money out of some of these countries? Yes, you've characterized that uh, challenge quite well. The loss and damage is on the one hand uh, what industrialized countries perceive as a bottomless pit because the fact is that we do not yet know and we won't know for quite a few years how much loss and how much damage is going to come and in fact that will be very much dependent on how quickly we can mitigate and how quickly we can reduce emissions the slower the emission reductions the more loss and the more damage so that is basically an unknown factor and that's why they perceive it as a bottomless pit that they cannot quantify in addition to the legal exposure that that you have mentioned so that is the view from the developed countryside from the developing countryside you can understand that they say wait let's really get our uh, facts here uh, straight it is the industrialized countries that through their industrialization have actually caused climate change most developing countries with a few uh, exceptions of large countries but most developing countries have no historical responsibility in climate change whatsoever. And they are the ones that are being are paying the highest price in terms of 
infrastructure destruction in terms of homeland and livelihood destruction. And so from their perspective, you can understand that they stand there saying, wait, you caused this. So now how are you going to help us to deal with this? So both views are actually very understandable. And as long as we look for a solution that is in the extreme of both of those views, I don't think that we will get to common ground. What we're going to have to do is try to figure out where do those two ends meet? What is the middle range in between that? And be able to begin to put some contours and yes, yeah, some contours around what will be included in loss and damage, which shouldn't be difficult to do because many countries are already experiencing loss and damage. So that should be uh, relatively straightforward to characterize at least what is already happening now. But what is very clear is that we cannot continue to drag the loss and damage issue and kick it forward every year because we've been doing that for years and years. And frankly, it is simply not fair to developing countries. It just isn't. Indeed, yeah. You mentioned the the need before to to build up uh, public trust as well back in the process. Uh, and one issue that was picked up in the press quite widely this year was the role of the, the fossil fuel companies at COP26 and the sort of uh, analogies being made with the, the tobacco industry turning up to conferences about health, etc. You, in your podcast, Global Optimism, you've been very open in terms of interviewing the CEOs of, of BP or, or, or other fossil fuel companies. How important is the role of fossil fuel companies and, and what should their role be at COP? For me, they seem to need to be part of the solution because we, we need them to change. But at the same time, I also understand activists who say, well, you know, if they're there, they're basically holding the space and therefore we're never moving forward. So how do you how do we manage to square this circle? The fact is, and it, it is a square that has to be managed. The fact is that fossil fuel industries, especially the coal industry, but increasingly also oil and gas are losing both social license because society is very quickly having huge transformational expectations from them and they're losing social license or also in the young people who don't even want to work for that industry anymore because they don't want to sell their brains to those industries but they're also losing financial license so you also see an increasing number of financial institutions and insurance companies that have decided that they do not want to either lend invest or offer insurance to fossil fuel companies because they understand them to be toxic assets or stranded assets that are quickly losing their value. So in the middle of this loss of both social uh, license as well as financial license, my sense is that it is important to give a voice to the leaders of these companies to have them report to the public what are they doing? They are some of the largest companies in the world. They have deep pockets. They have deep engineering skills. They have to switch over to a new economy. And we would all be better off the faster that they switch over. So my sense is that we have to both continue the pressure on them via social uh, social pressure on the streets, young people, the articles, etc. We have to continue to foster the capital starvation that they're already feeling. But at the same time, 
we have to hear from them because they could be, in theory, if they wanted to, and if they took the right decisions, they could make the difference in being able to half our emissions by 2030 or not, if they decide to do so. They are currently tiptoeing, some of them, tiptoeing in that direction. But we can't let them tiptoe. They have to gallop in that direction. So from that perspective, that is why we have decided to put them on in front of the public uh, in order to have them report to public opinion, what are they doing? And then the, the other part of the of that puzzle is, as you just mentioned, the protests. And at, at COP26, it was quite clear that the, the protests that were happening outside the venue and to a certain degree inside as well did have a, an impact. Alex Sharma on various occasions and other other negotiators came forward and said they were it was putting more pressure on them. It was making them think about what they were doing. COP27 will be held in, in, in Egypt, COP28 in the UAE. Are you concerned that civil society voices will be heard less in these countries and that that could have a weakening of ambition on the COPs in these countries? I don't think so. Honestly, we have been hearing from uh, from civil society and from activists at all COPs, as far as I can remember. And and it it had I believe that it is now such an established and and well versed part of the COPs that it would be very difficult to all of a sudden clamp down on that. If anything. Over the past, let me say, 10 years, which is what is fresh in my memory, those demonstrations have only grown in in numbers, in force, in messaging, in urgency. And that is very much to be applauded and to be appreciated because the fact is that we are running out of time. And from a policy and an international policy perspective, we're definitely dragging our feet. So to have that pressure from outside is very important. And I cannot imagine that that either of the two hosting countries, Egypt or the Emirates, would actually clamp down on something that is as well established, pretty traditional by now, growing in numbers. Very difficult to clamp down on something that is actually growing. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, for as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. We've talked a lot about the energy industry and fossil fuel companies. We mentioned we touched a little bit on nature, which was brought into um, the discussions at COP26, though for many, um, there's still a, a bit of a separation between biodiversity loss and nature solutions as, and climate. And then the other part of this is agriculture. You were previously on the board of Impossible Foods, and uh, which is wants to move us towards a, a plant-based diet. Do you think uh, the COPs now in the future, COP27, COP28, agriculture um, and nature need to be much more key to these discussions and and not just be name checked in the, the final declarations, but actually have much more sectorial reductions and attention focused on them so that they also become much more part of the solution? Yes, very well put. And I must give credit here to COP26 because from what I can remember in the past few years, this is the one COP that in its decisions has recognized most clearly the role of land use, the role of deforestation, the role of agriculture in both being uh, responsible for a sizable amount of emissions, but also not just being responsible for the emissions, but also having the potential to reduce those emissions and hence to contribute to climate solutions. And especially the decision on uh, deforestation and the coherence and, and the convening around that issue at COP26 was quite unique for a climate meeting. This is something that we have struggled for uh, for years to be able to bring all of these nature-based issues together because there is no such thing as climate is over here in one bucket, close the lid, open another bucket, here is deforestation or forest or land use, close that, put the lid, then open another bucket and here are the ocean issues. All of these is actually part of the same ecosystem upon which we depend. And so the fact that in our infinite wisdom, we humans have created different conventions. We have the biodiversity convention that is going to meet in China in the spring of next year. We have our climate conventions. We have, why did we, well, why did we divide that up? We divided it up because there are complex issues and we wanted to get our hands around it. But the challenge now is to understand that all of this is actually interlinked. And that is why I very much celebrate that there was a very serious coming together on deforestation at COP26, which should be then taken on and built upon at the Biodiversity Convention, where our aspiration is to get a decision that all countries agree to protect 30% of the Earth's surface, whether that be water or soil, 
by 2030. That's a difficult target to agree to and even more difficult to deliver. But it's necessary. Yep, definitely. It's the, the division that continues still seems very artificial, but hopefully uh, yeah, that will change in the coming years. I wanted to ask you about geopolitics more generally, because obviously what you're saying makes absolute sense, but geopolitics are clearly difficult at the moment, I think, everywhere. And, and at COP26, we saw the, the US and, and China coming together and saying, we're going to put aside our geopolitical differences because we all need to work together on on climate. But ultimately, it seems that that can only go so far. And, and geopolitics seems to be getting more complicated, not, not less complicated as 2021 ends. And are you concerned that this kind of wider picture could scupper all the, the good work that is actually happening around climate action? The, the fact is that we tend to have short memories and think that geopolitics has only been around in the past two weeks. <laughs> and that's not true. We've always had geopolitical challenges way back, but at, even at the beginning of the convention 30 years ago, and certainly now. And we will always have geopolitics being the surrounding reality around climate change issues. Sometimes the geopolitics is a wind in our back and sometimes it is a wind in the front, but it's always going to be there. And what I have actually seen, especially between the US and China, let's remember that in 2015, before the Paris Agreement, they actually got together and signed four bilateral agreements and, and memoranda on what they were going to do together on climate change. This year, they worked and worked because, as you mentioned, the tensions between the U.S. and China have actually become much higher. And so they worked until they were able to do somewhat what they did uh, some years ago, which is to ring fence climate change and take it out of all of the other issues that they're not agreeing on in the understanding that climate is a much larger issue with much graver and much more urgent consequences than anything else that they're disagreeing about. And so that understanding is actually very helpful and I hope will be the direction that we continue to move in because we have to remember that if we do not address climate change in a timely fashion, then it doesn't really matter what we are or not doing on human rights. It doesn't really matter what we're doing on education. It doesn't really matter what we're doing on health because the destruction on the planet will be so severe that everything else falls by the wayside. That is why climate change and addressing climate change in a timely fashion is at the basis of being able to achieve all the sustainable development goals. But we have to be able to half our emissions by 2030. And, and um, how, I know that you're optimistic, but how optimistic are you really? Alex Sharma said to me yesterday, he said we had the, the Glasgow Declaration but and, and 1.5 is still within reach, but the pulse remains weak. And the speed at which we're moving even post-COP26 is very slow. There's no real sort of sudden change around the world where governments are really standing up and shouting about climate change. They're incrementally moving forward, but there's still much more in the news about COVID, about other issues. So how optimistic are you? And what are the kind of, say, three things that really need to happen between now and next November to ensure that 
1.5 really does remain in reach? I'm optimistic because I see, first, I know that there was a recognition of the much, much deeper urgency and emergency coming out of COP26 with immediate immediate consequences. And let me just name a few. Iceland has stopped all new oil exploration. Norway has stopped their oil licenses in 2022. Panama has added a GHG, a greenhouse gas emissions shipping tariff for all ships that go through the Panama Canal. Shell pull out of the Campbell oil field. And I could go on and on. These are just a couple of things that have happened in the past 10 days. And and if you really look for this, because it doesn't make the front page news, but if you look for news items on how we're actually addressing climate change, you can definitely find them. Are they enough? No. But we are definitely getting, getting much more movement. Now, to the three priorities, I think you told me. In the first few months of 2022, if I have to pick only three priorities, and that's difficult because the list is long, but I would say priority number one is to figure out how to quickly incorporate all of the pledges and the commitments that were made at COP26 into the new version of the nationally determined contributions, as well as starting to implement and monitor that implementation. Secondly, mobilize finance for developing countries. That was a huge missing area at COP26 again. And again, that seems to be a leitmotiv now at COPs that we are always falling short of the financial support for developing countries. And thirdly, and I think the first to fall into the third bucket is to really very consciously and very intentionally work on reestablishing trust through integrity, through credibility, through transparency, because without trust, it's very difficult to come to future agreements. Well done that you you managed to do it in three. That was uh, very impressive because, as you say, there's, there's lots to be done. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and rate us and leave us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. I'm Philippa Nuttall. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.